Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So there are are certain statements that in and of themselves, they're, they're meaningful, and the, the words and the message they carry are significant. But when you know who said it, it becomes even that much more meaningful and that much more significant. Some, uh, some messages are enhanced when you know who the messenger is. I came across uh, some quotes earlier this week, uh, and they are, are, are famous quotes by famous people. But if you don't know the, the context and the who, it might, be, uh, might not seem as significant as you would imagine. Here's one of the uh, quotes that I came across. It says, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Uh, if you're, you know, your middle schooler comes home with a math test that they failed and says, you know, look, mom, dad, I didn't, I didn't fail. I just found a lot of the wrong answers. Uh, that wouldn't, it wouldn't go over very well. It wouldn't be very convincing. Here's a, uh, but when you know that this was from Thomas Edison, and that it was through all of these failures that he learned how to succeed in creating something meaningful. Now the, this statement, it makes sense and it gives context to it. There's an, another one. I have no special talent. I'm only uh, passionately curious. If this is an unemployed millennial who's living in his parents' basement and mooching off of them saying, look, oh, I don't have any special talents. I'm just curious. Uh, this kind of sounds like garbage and just an excuse. But when you know that it was Albert Einstein who said this, it becomes a little more meaningful, right? Because you know that this was somebody who didn't feel like he had any special gifts. It was just this, this passion that was continuing to stir in him. Or here's another one. Uh, I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. If this was a wealthy Westerner looking at poverty in India and saying, you know, when I look at the poverty in India, I try not to look at the misery. I just like to look at the beauty in between. Uh, well, that would, that would be offensive, actually, right? But when we know that it was Anne Frank who said this, that somebody who is in the midst of one of the most uh, horrific atrocities the world has known, living in the misery, saying, I try not to look at the misery, but the beauty that's in between. This, now all of a sudden, it has a, a new meaning and a new context. And we're in this series this summer called Guess Who, where we're looking at the authors of the New Testament because we believe that their stories do impact how we understand their writings. Now, on the one hand, we really do believe that the scripture, both Old and New Testament, is God's word. All right, here at Beacon, we believe that, we hold that to be true, that God is the ultimate author of scripture. But we also believe that God didn't just hand us the Bible as a complete finished text delivered from heaven to our doorstep mixed in with our Amazon Prime packages, right? We believe that the, the Bible was written over generations and, you know, the New Testament written over, you know, 20 to 40 years, depending on how you date some of these things, uh, by different authors. And they weren't just 
like, they weren't just God's secretaries who he was dictating, <clears throat> dictating a message to and writing these things out. No, they were, they were actually writing from their unique perspectives with their personalities and their experience kind of woven through. And so, yes, we believe, even if you know nothing about the authors of the New Testament, the words on these pages are meaningful and significant. But we also believe that if you know who's writing it, those messages become even more meaningful and more significant. And today we're going to be looking at the Apostle Peter. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. 2 Peter 3, verse 17. This, uh, as the title implies, is Peter's second letter that he wrote of two letters. So this is the last uh, letter that he wrote. And this is, as far as we know, this is the last recorded writing of Peter. He didn't live much past writing this letter. And obviously, he continued to teach and continued to give messages. But this is the last recorded words we have of the Apostle Peter. And these last two verses in this, uh, this letter are kind of his summary statement for what he's just been talking about through the whole of the letter. And these are his final words given to us. It says in verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. He's saying, be, be on guard. Be aware. And throughout the letter, he's been talking about how there's a lot of misinformation out there, that there's a lot of different uh, versions of the truth that are being uh, put forward in his day and age. I know we can't imagine what it's like for people to have different versions of the truth that's completely irrelevant in our day and age, right? Because there's only one version of the truth. Uh, but now he's saying there's these, these competing ideas out in the world, and we need to be on guard against these. And he says, so that you don't fall from your secure position. And this is an interesting phrase because he says, you're, you're going to fall from a secure position. Normally, we aren't concerned about falling from a secure position, right? You worry about falling from an insecure position. You worry about falling when you're in a, a place that is, is sh like shaky ground, right? But when you're firmly planted and you're secure, there's no fear of falling. So why would Peter choose this wording to say, be, be aware, be on guard, because you might fall from what appears to be a secure position. And this is where I think Peter's testimony really comes into play. All right, his name is actually Simon. We call him Peter because Jesus renamed him Peter. But Simon Peter, he, uh, his story was very similar to John's story. Uh, and he started out as a fisherman, just like John did, right? And they were in the same general vicinity, uh, fishing in Lake Galilee. Some scholars believe that John and Peter, uh, if you were here last week, Robert kind of unpacked John's story for us. But some scholars believe that John and Peter worked for the same fishing company uh, in the, the region of Galilee. I like to believe that they worked for rival fishing companies. Uh, I have no evidence to support that, but it just sounds like something Jesus would do, pick like two rival fishermen who've been competing their whole life and choose both of them to be his disciples, because uh, Jesus does stuff like that. But they were both fishermen working in that region, and, you know, humble livings. They weren't uh, learned men. They knew, you know, they, they had their kind of elementary schooling and everything, but they never went on to like what we would call like college or higher levels of education, simple fishermen. And Peter, he actually met Jesus through his brother Andrew. 
So his brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And one day John the Baptist saw Jesus and started saying like, Jesus, oh my goodness, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And Andrew, being an intelligent man, said, well, if I'm going to be somebody's disciple, I'm going to go with Jesus then, because you seem to like him a lot. So he ditched John the Baptist, became a disciple of Jesus, and went and found his brother Peter and said, we have found him. We found the Messiah. And here comes Peter meeting Jesus, and Jesus says, ah, Simon, son of Jonah, now I call you Peter. And this is where, just so you know, this is where we get the name Peter from. Like, there were no Peters before. Peter wasn't a name. It was just, uh, it actually means rock, right? It's, a, it's the word for rock. And he says, I'm going to take you, Simon, as a normal name, and I'm going to call you Rock. And now all of a sudden, Peter is a name. Like, are there any Peters in the room? You know, we had a couple in the, the first service. No Peters here. Uh, but any Peter that you meet is essentially named after Peter, who is he, he made this into a name, but it really just means rock. So it means these guys also got their name from Simon Peter. Uh, but if you've ever wondered whether Jesus has a sense of humor, then look no further than Jesus calling Peter the rock, all right? I, I can imagine Andrew, his brother, like chuckling under his breath when Jesus says this, because if you know anything about Peter throughout the Gospels, he is anything but a rock. He's actually the most unstable and shaky character in the New Testament. He's all over the map. You might even remember uh, a story where Jesus, he walks on water, right? And it's this amazing thing, and the disciples see him off in the distance, and at first they think it's a ghost, and he's like, no, it's just me, guys. And they're like, and Peter, he chimes in, he says, Lord, Lord, if it's you, call me out to you so I can walk on water. And Jesus says, yeah, come on in. So Peter gets out and he's walking on water for like a second before he turns and he sees the waves and he starts to sink like a rock, uh, which maybe that's where he gets the name. Uh, but, but he has this amazing high, this experience of walking on water that lasts just a second and then he, he starts to sink. Or, uh, another great story is Jesus, uh, last week Robert talked about how Jesus, he had the 12, the 12 disciples, but he also had this kind of inner core of the three, and Peter was part of this inner core. It was Peter, James, and John. And he took the three of them up to a mountainside, and Jesus was, it says, transfigured before him, which means he was like kind of transformed into this more glorious state. He was like glowing, and Elijah was there, and Moses was there, and Jesus and Elijah and Moses are having this great conversation, and Peter's just kind of watching, and he feels the need to just interrupt and be like, excuse me, guys, I could build you some tents here, and we could just hang out here. Uh, And I love what, because in the the Gospels, it actually has in parentheses this, Peter didn't know what he was saying, he was just so frightened. (laughs) Uh, Now, a stable person when they don't know what to say, says nothing. <laughs> but that's not Peter. Peter, uh, as one comedian would put it, Peter has no on-deck circle for his thoughts. Uh, so whereas like a normal person might be sitting there and thinking, oh, this is cool, maybe like we could build some tents and we could all live up here on the mountain and be like one big happy family. And well, a normal person would like let that into their on-deck circle and dismiss it as a stupid idea, Peter thinks of that thought and batter up. <laughs> and he's just, hey guys, how about we build some tents here? And she's like, whoa, Peter, settle down. <laughs> he was just kind of this, this erratic and like he would have these highs and these lows. Uh, one of the experiences where Peter, he actually was given this name, The Rock, all right? And it kind of shows up a few different times where Jesus reiterates it. But one of them is in this, this setting where Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, who do people say I am? 
And the disciples are like, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and some say you're just a prophet. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter, he answers. He says, you are the son, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This bright, shining moment for Peter. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. You are the rock, right? This is amazing. And right after this, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and he's like, Jesus, this is not good. And he actually, it says he rebukes Jesus. And all right, this is verse 18 where he's called the rock. Verse 23 Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. So Peter didn't make it five verses after being called the rock before Jesus is accusing him of being deceived by Satan and being like a messenger of Satan, right? In that next breath, Peter, he just had these highs and these lows. Uh, another great story is when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and he's kind of going around and it's this really this beautiful expression of the gospel where Jesus, the Lord and master, humbles himself to serve his disciples and wash their feet and he gets to Peter and Peter's like, no, 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 you can't, you can't wash my my feet. And Jesus is like, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And whereas a normal person would say, oh, then wash my feet. Peter, of course, goes in like the complete opposite direction. He's like, well, then wash my whole body and my head and my hands. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. settle down. The feet will be fine, Peter. He's just this, this kind of like bipolar, sporadic guy who's like these highs and these lows. And probably one of the most famous, of course, is when Jesus is gathered with the disciples and uh, shortly before he was going to be arrested. And he says, look, you guys are all going to scatter. You're all going to abandon me. And Peter's like, not me. No, no, no. These guys might do it. I'm sticking by your side. Even if I have to die, I'm going nowhere. And Jesus is like, I wouldn't be so sure about that. And a few hours later, you see Peter, the rock, right, cowering in fear before like a, a teenage girl who asks him, wait, didn't I see you with Jesus? And he's like, no, no, not me. I've never met the man, right? Our, this, is, this is Jesus' rock, <laughs> right? He was so unstable, and he had these highs and these lows and these highs again and these lows again. And sometimes they were so close together and you'd think, man, how could he go from high to low so often and so consistently? And then you start to look at your own life and you realize, oh, maybe, maybe I can relate to that. Maybe I've kind of experienced the mountaintop and I've experienced the valleys and the mountaintops again and the valleys. And there's been seasons where I'm doing great and I'm in scripture and I'm reading it daily. And then you know, there's seasons where I, you know, I start to pray and I just imagine that God's like, wait, who? Oh, you again. Yeah, no, I remember you. Uh, there are times where things are, are great and I'm like, I'm doing well. And the next thing you know, you, you fall back into sin that you thought you'd like dealt with before. Or maybe you, you've done kind of the highs and lows so often that you kind of become jaded to the whole thing and the idea of like any passion around your faith, you've just kind of set aside and you said, you know, you know passion is the problem. And so you've kind of taken a more stoic approach to your faith and you might be steady and even keel, but, but there's a passionless steadiness. Or maybe for others, there's, there's always this emotional high and you're always on fire and you're always excited, but what you're excited about is constantly changing. Like you're always finding this new thing. It's like you're excited about this for three weeks and you're onto this for three weeks and you're onto this for three weeks and you drive everybody crazy because they can't keep up and you're, you, you're always on fire about something, but there's no stability in there. 
and you, you know deep down inside you're kind of on this shaky ground and you're just trying to keep it up. I think we can all relate to Peter and, and even take comfort in knowing that Peter, this is Peter, this is Jesus' chosen disciple, also experienced these highs and lows. And I think it's good for us to take comfort in that. But we don't want to stop there because that's not where Peter's story ends. Because after Jesus was raised again, he, he restores Peter. There's this really sweet exchange between Jesus and Peter where he, Jesus kind of welcomes him back and commissions him again to go out and, and start this church movement that Jesus was starting. And it, it's awesome. And then you get to the book of Acts and you see Peter and he's like a new Peter. And he's preaching to thousands and like thousands are getting saved. And he's boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus when he's been imprisoned and being persecuted and he, he's leading the church and he's making wise decisions and he's, he's he, all of a sudden he's this rock that Jesus had talked about. He is the rock that Jesus kind of prophetically said he would become and we don't know too much about Peter's death because he died before, uh, he died after most of the New Testament was written but we do get a glimpse at the end of the Gospel of John that Peter would be martyred for his faith. And from church history, we know that Peter was actually crucified. But before he was crucified, he had to watch his, his own wife. That's right, Peter was married. Uh, his own wife be executed for her faith. And uh, Clement of Alexandria he actually gives us a, an account of it. They say, accordingly, that the blessed Peter, on seeing his wife led to death, rejoiced on account of her call and conveyance home and called very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, remember thou the Lord. At the end of his life, Peter is a rock. And then he is led to be crucified. And Peter, who was cowering before people who just even said that he had any affiliation to Jesus, who denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times, this Peter, this shaky Peter, is now this solid rock, and as he is being uh, about to be crucified, he begs his executioners, not, not for his life, he doesn't beg for his life, he begs that they would crucify him upside down because he doesn't feel worthy to share the same death as his Lord, right? He became this rock. And so there is hope for all of us that, yes, we might be experiencing the ups and downs in our faith, and we might go through these seasons where we're on fire and then we're not, but we don't have to stay there. That We aren't doomed to keep repeating this over and over again for the rest of our lives. And Peter, he's been through this and he's come out the other side and he's about to offer us advice on how we can escape this cycle. How we too can become rock solid in our faith. He picks up in verse 18. He says, be on guard so you don't fall from your secure position. He says in verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So Peter's, uh, Peter's advice for us to escape this cycle of ups and downs, to, to get out of this place where there's this fear of falling from what appears to be a secure position, his advice for us is to grow. And this might seem counterintuitive uh, at first glance, because if I want to stay secure, I want to kind of stay where I am. I want to cling to where I am. If I don't want to fall, I want to cling to where I am. I don't want to move. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. If you want to remain secure, you actually have to be on the move. Growing, it means increasing. It means 
keeping moving, keep moving forward. It's not just about staying where we are. It's almost in a sense that if we stay where we are, if we're not growing, that it's going to put us back into a position where we might fall. It might seem secure, but we might fall. Sometimes I, uh, I, I'm tend- I have this tendency to think that the Christian life, it's like climbing a staircase. And that as I'm climbing the staircase, I'm becoming more like Jesus. And I might climb a few steps and get to a landing, and I might stay there for a few years, and then maybe climb a couple more stairs, and then maybe step back a stair, but then climb a couple more stairs. And over time, I'm becoming more like Jesus. But the, the picture that we get from Peter, his life and his writings, is that the Christian life, it's not like climbing a staircase, it's like climbing an escalator that's going in the opposite direction. Anybody willing to admit that you've actually tried to climb uh, the down escalator? I know you guys have done it. Don't. Yes, he's, he's willing. Uh, you know what happens. If you stop moving, you don't stay where you were. The moment you stop moving, you actually start to descend back. And this is the, the picture that we get from Peter, is that if we want to even, if we want to maintain where we are, we actually need to keep moving. Uh, another way of thinking about it is that if you're, you're riding a bike, the moment you stop moving forward, the bike is going to fall over. You need to stay in motion in order to keep balance on the bike. And this is what Peter is saying. If we want to be secure in this position, we need to keep moving forward. We need to be growing in our faith. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we had our annual congregational meeting and pizza party, and it was a party because we, we were able to celebrate everything that God has done over the last year, and, you know, Viscardi being here was a part of that, and it really was a celebration because so much is just up and to the right. And at Beacon, we have our, our mission that has four components, right? Love God, help me out here. Love God, love people, grow in Christ, serve the world. You guys sound sleepy. I think we could do better. All right, let's try that one more time. So as a church, we, because this is our mission, we kind of measure ourselves against our mission. And so over the last year, we saw that more people, more people are expressing their love for God and finding their love for God in worship at Beacon than ever before. Like, that is something we're celebrating, right? More people than ever before expressing their love for God and worship. And we also found out that over the last year, more people are expressing their love for one another and growing in their love for one another in small groups than ever before at Beacon, which is something to celebrate. And more people are serving the world in ministry at Beacon than ever before. Like, up and to the right on all of these. It's awesome. And when it comes to growing in Christ, we are exactly the same as we were the year before. And that's, that's a little concerning because if Peter's right, it's great to celebrate that we're loving God and we're loving people and we're serving the world, but if we're going to stay here, if we're going to keep this position, we need to be growing as well. It's not enough to just achieve that and say, well, we're here, we'll stay here because if we're not growing, Peter is going to say, we are liable to fall from what appears to be a secure position. And, you know, as a church, we, we might be able to replace some numbers. Like, we can keep these numbers growing up as an institution, but we're not concerned just about the numbers. We're concerned about you as an individual. And we don't want to replace your loving God number with somebody else's loving God number. We want to make sure that you're continuing to love God and you're continuing to love people and you're continuing to serve the world. And the only way that you'll stay stable in that position is if you're growing in Christ. And, and Peter, he actually gives us two categories where we need to grow. The first, he says, grow in the grace. He says, grow in grace and knowledge. Grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 
this is another interesting statement on Peter's behalf because grace is unmerited favor, right? Grace is receiving a gift that you could never earn and you don't deserve, all right? So how do you grow in something that you can't earn or deserve? It would be like me telling, you know, Kristen here. Hi, Kristen, calling you out. Uh, Kristen, here's your mission. Next year, you have to get more Christmas presents than you did last year, all right? Make sure you get more Christmas presents than you did last year. It sounds great, but she is powerless to do that because the gift comes from the giver. We can't, grow, we can't increase the amount of gifts that we receive. Growing in grace isn't about increasing the amount of gifts we receive. Growing in grace is increasing in our, our knowledge and appreciation and the understanding of the gift that we have received in Christ. And this really connects back to what Robert was talking about last week with John. Because the gift that we have received is the love of God. Like this unwavering, unshakable love of God. That the fact that there is nothing, there is nothing that you could do today to make God love you any more than he already does. And there is nothing that you can do today that will make God love you any less than he already does. Because his love is a gift it is a gracious gift that he has given to us in Christ. And he loves you not because of your righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. And that's like, it's a gift. And you can't like increase the amount of grace. Like he's already given that gift. But we can learn to live in light of that gift. To spend more time reflecting on, meditating on how do we orient our lives around this gift, growing in our appreciation of this gift, knowing that we received it freely, but it cost God greatly, right? This is how we grow in grace. And it was fun uh, seeing Robert preach the message last week because this isn't just uh, a message for him. This, this was something that was more personal because over the last several weeks, I've been able to have conversations with him and I've watched as Robert himself, who's our lead pastor, is growing in his appreciation of these things. So Robert, who's our lead pastor, one of the most mature followers of Jesus in the church, somebody who has way more years under his belt than I am, like way, 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 way more years uh, of uh, life experience than I do because he's just so much older than me. Uh, <laughs> but he, I'm, I'm watching him continue to grow in grace. Like, it's not something that you just learned and you're done with. It's something that we can live in light of this truth and constantly be growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter says it's not just about growing in grace. It's about also growing in knowledge. And in the Greek language, there are two words for knowledge. There's gnosis and epinosis, all right? And uh, a little Greek lesson here. Gnosis is, it deals more with like head knowledge, academic knowledge, like, uh, you know, information. It's a little more cerebral. Epignosis deals a little more with heart knowledge. It's that kind of experiential knowledge. So when I, I first met my wife, uh, like any good millennial, I decided that I was going to Facebook stalk her so I could find out as much as I could about her. You know, of course, I wanted to see if she was seeing anybody, and she wasn't, which was great. Uh, and, uh, you know, I learned some stuff, that she was an artist, and that she played soccer. She was from Arizona, that she was super hot, although that one I already had picked up on. Uh, but all of this information, this is kind of gnosis, right? This is kind of that head knowledge. But now, after almost six years of marriage and countless shared experiences and watching her birth another human through her body, I know her in a very different way. Like, I know her personally. There's this experiential knowledge, and that is the epignosis. 
right? It's that kind of personal heart knowledge of knowing somebody personally. So you would be surprised. I, I, I mean, I was surprised, and you might be surprised to find out that when he says grow in knowledge here, he actually says grow in knowledge gnosis. He actually says grow in head knowledge. You might expect him to say, oh, you need to grow in this experiential knowledge. But he already has that covered, right? Because growing in grace is growing in that kind of experiential knowledge of God and his love for us, right? But he also says we need to be growing in this head knowledge, that we need to be growing in the information that we have about God. Earlier in this chapter, if you want to look up uh, just a little bit, in the very beginning of chapter 3 here, look what Peter says. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, and I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, right? He wants to stimulate this wholesome thinking. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles, all right? So he says, I want you to recall two things. I want you to recall what the prophets said and the commands of Jesus given by the apostles. And so we have the prophets in the Old Testament, and we have the apostles and the commands of Jesus given through the apostles in the New Testament. So Peter is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to be able to recall the Old Testament and the New Testament. But how can we recall something that isn't already in our minds, right? How can you bring to mind something that's never been planted in our minds to begin with? And so there's this expectation from him that we will actually be growing in our knowledge of scripture because that's the only way we can recall something. Because we actually need knowledge about Jesus. The experiential growing in grace is super important. And we can't, you know, we can't do the, you know, you guys all know what Paul said. Knowledge puffs up, right? So if we have knowledge by itself, it's going to make us arrogant. And we've all met that person who knows all sorts of things about Jesus and can quote Bible verses. And they're a jerk, <laughs> right? And they don't look anything like Jesus. And of course, we don't want to be that. So we need to be growing in grace. But that doesn't mean that we can let go of this important task of growing in knowledge. And one of the, uh, the strategies here at Beacon that we try to offer to you is our discipleship classes. And if, if you haven't engaged with our discipleship classes, I can't encourage you enough to take advantage of it. They're very information heavy because the point is to grow in knowledge. Like we wanna give you as much of this information as possible because we believe these are core things to, that every believer in Jesus should know. And we, we hope and encourage you, if you haven't already jumped in on these, jump in on these classes. And if you haven't done Alpha yet, start with Alpha, but then get in on these classes because we're trying to help you grow in knowledge because we know that growing in knowledge is super important if you want to remain stable and you don't want to fall from your secure position. Another great way is reading. Man, it's awesome that we get to live in the 21st century where we have access to so many great texts. You know, we have to be careful what we're reading. And so if you're, you're not familiar, like ask people, we have our resource center out there. That's a great place to start. Read every book on that shelf uh, before you even look at any other books because we handpicked them because we know they're awesome, awesome, awesome books for every Christ follower. But uh, it's, this is a great way for us to be growing in knowledge. And if you know how to read take advantage of that or take advantage of podcasts and sermons. We have so much access to awesome information that we of all people in history should have no excuse for not growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, growth won't come easy. None of this stuff happens easy. Nothing that's good really happens easily, does it? 
And so, you know, and I, I, I want to be as gracious as possible and kind and understanding. But like when I, I talk to people and they're like, man, I'd love to come out to a discipleship class, but it's just so hard to find the time. And I just want to say, I know. <laughs> Nobody ever said it was easy. Uh, the, the expectation is that it is going to be difficult. It is going to be challenging. That maybe reading scripture is hard work sometimes, and that's okay, that it actually requires hard work. I'm going to confess something. I hate reading. You might not know this about me. I hate it. I have always hated it. Like, when I, when I was growing up, I was always the kid who never read the book, all right? My father's here, actually, and he can attest to the fact that I never read the book because I hated reading, and I'm, I'm not that good at reading either. Like, when it came to standardized testing as a kid, reading comprehension was always my lowest, all right? I hate, and, and for the record, the book is never better than the movie, Never better than the movie because I don't have to read the movie. And so it wins out every time unless there's subtitles. And then that's just pushing me. Uh, but I hate reading. And yet I make sure, I make sure that I, I try to carve out at least 30 minutes every single day to be reading books about Jesus. And I don't do this for work. This isn't part of like my work schedule. This is like my my time, because I know I need to be growing in the knowledge of Jesus if I'm going to remain stable and secure and, and prevent me from falling from what appears to be a secure position. I don't like it, but it's good. It's good. And it's worth the effort because you, you need to be that rock. You need to be that rock for your spouse, you need to be that rock for your kids, you need to be that rock for your neighbors who don't know Jesus and your coworkers. You, you need to be that rock for you. And, and we don't have to settle for living this kind of roller coaster faith anymore. And here's, here's the best part. You actually can be that rock. Like you might not feel like you have what it takes, but I assure you, you do. And this is how Peter starts off this letter right? This is the very beginning in chapter one of this letter. He says, his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You get that? You get what he's saying? That the Holy Spirit living in you has given you everything you need. You have all the power you need to break the cycle and to become rock solid in your faith, just like Peter did. The same Holy Spirit that came to Peter at Pentecost, same spirit living in you if you're a believer in Christ. And we sometimes, when we think about the gospel, we focus so much on the fact that Jesus died for our sins, which is core to the gospel, right? We need that. But that's not the fullness of the gospel. Jesus, yes, he died for our sins, but then he rose again, and he ascended to the Father, and he sent his Holy Spirit to live in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you so that you can be this rock. You have everything you need in his divine power to live this godly life, to break the cycle, to be the rock. And we can sit back and we can say, all right, so Holy Spirit, do this work in me. But Peter doesn't do that because in his very next breath, he says, for this reason, because you have this divine power, he says, make every effort to add to your faith. Make every effort to grow. Because yes, you have the power, but it's still going to require effort on your part. It's going to require effort on my part, but it's worth it. Make every effort because his power is working in you to actually be this rock 
solid, stable follower of Jesus. And imagine, imagine what it would look like if we, as a church, all right, we're, we're going up into the right in so many categories, but imagine if we can continue that. Not just as a church body as a whole where we're replacing one person with another, but where each of us who are seated here today are continuing in that trajectory ourselves so we remain stable and secure in our position and we're continuing to grow and we are a rock, a rock for our community, a rock for Long Island where they get to come and see and know who Jesus is because of who he is in you. It's gonna take some effort but it is so worth the effort. And we're all in different places, and so don't feel like your next step is everybody's next step, but find out what your next step is and take that next step. It's gonna cost you. You're gonna have to probably plan around it, and you're gonna have to schedule it, and you're gonna have to figure out childcare, and you're going to have to make sacrifices on other ways. But when you make this effort, his power is going to transform you. And through you, he will continue to transform this church and the community at large. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, are just so grateful to know that your spirit is living in us. God, that you've given us power so that we don't have to settle for anything less than the, the fullness of what you have in store for us, that we can continue to grow up into Christ so that uh, that we too can be rock solid in our faith, unwavering. And that together, God, you can you take each, of, each one of us as living stones and build upon each other to create a, a church, a church that is a force to be reckoned with in this world. God, a, a kind of church that the gates of hell won't be able to stand against. God, I pray that you will stir each of us and give us that motivation to do the hard work, to make every effort to work these things out, to grow in knowledge, God, but to grow in grace and to just know how much you love us and to live in that love more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.